Section 20 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 20. Outside Glimpses of English Poverty. Becoming an inhabitant of a great English town, I often turned aside from the prosperous thoroughfares, where the edifices, the shops, and the bustling crowd differed not so much from scenes with which I was familiar in my own country, and went designedly astray among precincts that reminded me of some of Dickens' grimiest pages. There I caught glimpses of a people and a mode of life that were comparatively new to my observation, a sort of sombre, phantasmagoric spectacle, exceedingly undelightful to behold, yet involving a singular interest, and even fascination in its ugliness. Dirt, one would fancy, is plenty enough all over the world, being the symbolic accompaniment of the foul incrustation which began to settle over and bedim all earthly things as soon as Eve had bitten the apple, ever since which hapless epoch her daughters have chiefly been engaged in a desperate and unavailing struggle to get rid of it. But the dirt of a poverty-stricken English street is a monstrosity unknown on our side of the Atlantic. It reigns supreme within its own limits, and is inconceivable everywhere beyond them. We enjoy the great advantage that the brightness and dryness of our atmosphere keep everything clean that the sun shines upon, converting the larger portion of our impurities into transitory dust which the next wind can sweep away, in contrast with the damp adhesive grime that incorporates itself with all surfaces unless continually and painfully cleansed in the chill moisture of the English air. Then the all-pervading smoke of the city, abundantly intermingled with the sable snowflakes of bituminous coal hovering overhead, descending, and alighting on pavements and rich architectural fronts, on the snowy muslin of the ladies and the gentlemen's starched collars and shirt-bosoms, invests even the better streets in half-mourning garb. It is beyond the resources of wealth to keep the smut away from its premises or its own finger's ends. And as for poverty, it surrends itself to the dark influence without a struggle. Along with disastrous circumstances, pinching, need, adversity so lengthened out as to constitute the rule of life, there comes a certain chill depression of the spirits, which seems especially to shudder at cold water. In view of so wretched a state of things, we accept the ancient deluge not merely as an insulated phenomenon, but as a periodical necessity, and acknowledge that nothing less than such a general washing-day could suffice to cleanse the slovenly old world of its moral and material dirt. Gin-shops, or what the English call spirit-vaults, are numerous in the vicinity of these poor streets, and are set off with the magnificence of gilded door-posts, tarnished by contact with the unclean customers who haunt there. Ragged children come thither with old shaving-mugs, or broken-nosed teapots, 
or ally such makeshift receptacle to get a little poison or madness for their parents, who deserve no better requital at their hands for having engendered them. Inconceivably sluttish women enter at noonday and stand at the counter among boon companions of both sexes, stirring up misery and jollity in a bumper together, and quaffing off the mixture with a relish. As for the men, they lounge there continually, drinking till they are drunken, drinking as long as they have a half-penny left, and then, as it seemed to me, waiting for a sixpenny miracle to be wrought in their pockets so as to enable them to be drunken again. Most of these establishments have a significant advertisement of beds, doubtless for the accommodation of their customers, in the interval between one intoxication and the next. I never could find it in my heart, however, utterly to condemn these sad revellers, and should certainly wait till I had some better consolation to offer, before depriving them of their dram of gin, though death itself were in the glass, for methought their poor souls needed such fiery stimulant to lift them a little way out of the smothering squalor of both their outward and interior life giving them glimpses and suggestions, even if bewildering ones, of a spiritual existence that limited their present misery. The temperance reformers unquestionably derive their commission from the divine beneficence, but have never been taken fully into its counsels. All may not be lost, though those good men fail. Pawnbrokers' establishments, distinguished by the mystic symbol of the three golden balls, were conveniently accessible, though what personal property these wretched people could possess, capable of being estimated in silver or copper, so as to afford a basis for a loan, was a problem that still perplexes me. Old clothesmen, likewise, dwelt hard by, and hung out ancient garments to dangle in the wind. There were butchers' shops, too, of a class adapted to the neighborhood, presenting no such generously fattened carcasses as Englishmen love to gaze at in the market, no stupendous halves of mighty beeves, no dead hogs or muttons ornamented with carved bas-reliefs of fat on their ribs and shoulders in a peculiarly British style of art. Not these, but bits and gobbets of lean meat, selvages snipped off from stakes, tough and stringy morsels, bare bones smitten away from joints by the cleaver, tripe, liver, bullock's feet, or whatever else was cheapest and divisible into the smallest lots. I am afraid that even such delicacies came to many of their tables hardly oftener than Christmas. In the windows of other little shops you saw half a dozen wizened herrings, some eggs in a basket, looking so dingily antique that your imagination smelt them, fly-speckled biscuits, segments of a hungry cheese, pipes and papers of tobacco. Now and then a sturdy milkwoman passed by with a wooden yoke over her shoulders, supporting a pail on either side, filled with a whitish fluid, the composition of which was water and chalk, and the milk of a sickly cow, who gave the best she had, poor thing, but could scarcely make it rich or wholesome, spending her life in some close city nook, and pasturing on strange food. 
I have seen once or twice a donkey coming into one of these streets with panniers full of vegetables, and departing with a return cargo of what looked like rubbish and street sweepings. No other commerce seemed to exist, except, possibly, a girl might offer you a pair of stockings, or a worked collar, or a man whisper something mysterious about wonderfully cheap cigars. And yet I remember seeing female hucksters in those regions, with their wares on the edge of the sidewalk, and their own seats right in the carriageway, pretending to sell half-decayed oranges and apples, toffee, Ormskirk cakes, combs and cheap jewelry, the coarsest kind of crockery and little plates of oysters, knitting patiently all day long, and removing their undiminished stock in trade at nightfall. All indispensable importations from other quarters of the town were on a remarkably diminutive scale. For example, the wealthier inhabitants purchased their coal by the wheelbarrow load, and the poorer ones by the peck measure. It was a curious and melancholy spectacle when an overladen coal cart happened to pass through the street and drop a handful or two of its burden in the mud to see a half a dozen women and children scrambling for the treasure trove like a flock of hens and chickens gobbling up some spilt corn. In this connection I may as well mention a commodity of boiled snails, for such they appeared to me, though probably a marine production, which used to be peddled from door to door, piping hot as an article of cheap nutriment. The population of these dismal abodes appeared to consider the sidewalks and middle of the street as their common hall. In a drama of low life, the unity of place might be arranged rigidly according to the classic rule, and the street be the one locality in which every scene and incident should occur. Courtship, quarrels, plot and counterplot, conspiracies for robbery and murder, family difficulties or agreements, all such matters, I doubt not, are constantly discussed or transacted in this sky-roofed saloon, so regally hung with its sombre canopy of coal-smoke. Whatever the disadvantages of the English climate, the only comfortable or wholesome part of life for the city poor must be spent in the open air. The stifled and squalid rooms where they lie down at night whole families and neighborhoods together, or sulkily elbow one another in the daytime, when a settled rain drives them within doors, are worse horrors than it is worth while, without a practical object in view, to admit into one's imagination. No wonder that they creep forth from the foul mystery of their interiors, stumble down from their garrets, or scramble up out of their cellars, on the upper step of which you may see the grimy housewife, before the shower is ended, letting the raindrops gutter down her visage, while her children, an impish progeny of cavernous recesses below the common sphere of humanity, swarm into the daylight and attain all that they know of personal purification in the nearest mud-puddle. It might also make a man doubt the existence of his own soul, to observe how nature has flung these little wretches into the street and left them there, so evidently regarding them as nothing worth, and how all mankind acquiesce in the great mother's estimate of her offspring. For if they are to have no immortality, what superior claim can I assert for mine? 
and how difficult to believe that anything so precious as a germ of immortal growth can have been buried under this dirt-heap, plunged into this cesspool of misery and vice. As often as I beheld the scene, it affected me with surprise and loathsome interest, much resembling, though in a far intenser degree, the feeling with which, when a boy, I used to turn over a plank or an old log that had long lain on the damp ground, and found a vivacious multitude of unclean and devilish-looking insects scampering to and fro beneath it. Without an infinite faith, there seemed as much prospect of a blessed futurity for those hideous bugs and many-footed worms as for these brethren of our humanity and co-heirs of all our heavenly inheritance. Ah, what a mystery! Slowly, slowly, as after groping at the bottom of a deep, noisome, stagnant pool, my hope struggles upward to the surface, bearing the half-drowned body of a child along with it, and heaving it aloft for its life, and my own life, and all our lives. Unless these slime-clogged nostrils can be made capable of inhaling celestial air, I know not how the purest and most intellectual of us can reasonably expect ever to taste a breath of it. The whole question of eternity is staked there. If a single one of those helpless little ones be lost, the world is lost. The women and children greatly preponderate in such places— the men probably wandering abroad in quest of that daily miracle, a dinner and a drink, or perhaps slumbering in the daylight, that they may the better follow out their cat-like rambles through the dark. Here are women with young figures, but old, wrinkled, yellow faces, fanned and blear-eyed with the smoke, which they cannot spare from their scanty fires, it being too precious for its warmth to be swallowed by the chimney." Some of them sit on the doorsteps, nursing their unwashed babies at bosoms which we will glance aside from, for the sake of our mothers and all womanhood, because the fairest spectacle is here the foulest. Yet motherhood, in these dark abodes, is strangely identical with what we have all known it to be in the happiest homes. Nothing, as I remember, smote me with more grief and pity all the more poignant because perplexingly entangled with an inclination to smile, than to hear a gaunt and ragged mother priding herself on the pretty ways of her ragged and skinny infant, just as a young matron might when she invites her lady friends to admire her plump, white-robed darling in the nursery. Indeed, no womanly characteristic seemed to have altogether perished out of these poor souls. It was the very same creature whose tender torments make the rapture of our young days, whom we love, cherish, and protect, and rely upon in life and death, and whom we delight to see beautify her beauty with rich robes and set it off with jewels, though now fantastically masquerading in a garb of tatters, wholly unfit for her to handle." I recognized her, over and over again, in the groups round a doorstep or in the descent of a cellar, chatting with prodigious earnestness about intangible trifles, laughing for a little jest, sympathizing at almost the same instant with one neighbor's sunshine and another's shadow. 
wise, simple, sly and patient, yet easily perturbed, and breaking into small feminine ebullitions of spite, wrath and jealousy, tornadoes of a moment, such as vary the social atmosphere of her silken-skirted sisters, though smothered into propriety by dint of a well-bred habit. Not that there was an absolute deficiency of good breeding even here. It often surprised me to witness a courtesy and deference among these ragged folks, which, having seen it, I did not thoroughly believe in, wondering whence it should have come. I am persuaded, however, that there were laws of intercourse which they never violated, a code of the cellar, the garret, the common staircase, the doorstep and the pavement, which perhaps had as deep a foundation in natural fitness as the code of the drawing-room. Yet again I doubt whether I may not have been uttering folly in the last two sentences, when I reflect how rude and rough these specimens of feminine character generally were. They had a readiness with their hands that reminded me of Molly Seagram and other heroines in Fielding's novels. For example, I have seen a woman meet a man in the street and, for no reason perceptible to me, suddenly clutch him by the hair and cuff his ears, an infliction which he bore with exemplary patience, only snatching the very earliest opportunity to take to his heels. Where a sharp tongue will not serve the purpose, they trust to the sharpness of their fingernails, or incarnate a whole vocabulary of vituperative words in a resounding slap, or the downright blow of a doubled fist. All English people, I imagine, are influenced in a far greater degree than ourselves by this simple and honest tendency, in cases of disagreement, to batter one another's persons, and whoever has seen a crowd of English ladies, for instance, at the door of the Sistine Chapel in Holy Week, will be satisfied that their belligerent propensities are kept in abeyance only by a merciless rigor on the part of society. It requires a vast deal of refinement to spiritualize their large physical endowments. Such being the case with the delicate ornaments of the drawing-room, it is the less to be wondered at that women who live mostly in the open air, amid the coarsest kind of companionship and occupation, should carry on the intercourse of life with a freedom unknown to any class of American females, though still I am resolved to think, compatible with the generous breadth of natural propriety. It shocked me at first to see them, of all ages, even elderly, as well as infants that could just toddle across the street alone, going about in the mud and mire, or through the dusky snow and slosh of a severe week in winter, with petticoats high uplifted above bare, red feet and legs. But I was comforted by observing that both shoes and stockings generally reappeared with better weather, having been thriftily kept out of the damp for the convenience of dry feet within doors. Their hardihood was wonderful, and their strength greater than could have been expected from such spare diet as they probably lived on. I have seen them carrying on their heads great burdens under which they walked as freely as if they were fashionable bonnets, or sometimes the burden was huge enough almost to cover the whole person, looked at from behind, as in Tuscan villages you may see the girls coming in from the country with great bundles of green twigs upon their backs, so that they resemble locomotive masses of verdure and fragrance. 
but these poor Englishwomen seemed to be laden with rubbish, incongruous and indescribable, such as bones and rags, the sweepings of the house and of the street, a merchandise gathered up from what poverty itself had thrown away, a heap of filthy stuff analogous to Christian's bundle of sin. Sometimes, though very seldom, I detected a certain gracefulness among the younger women that was altogether new to my observation. It was a charm proper to the lowest class. One girl I particularly remember, in a garb none of the cleanest and nowise smart, and herself exceedingly coarse in all respects, but yet endowed with a sort of witchery, a native charm, a robe of simple beauty and suitable behavior that she was born in, and had never been tempted to throw off, because she had really nothing else to put on. Eve herself could not have been more natural. Nothing was affected, nothing imitated, no proper grace was vulgarized by an effort to assume the manners or adornments of another sphere. This kind of beauty, arrayed in a fitness of its own, is probably vanishing out of the world, and will certainly never be found in America, where all the girls, whether daughters of the upper tendon, the mediocrity, the cottage, or the kennel, aim at one standard of dress and deportment, seldom accomplishing a perfectly triumphant hit or an utterly absurd failure. Those words, genteel and ladylike, are terrible ones and do us infinite mischief, but it is because, at least I hope so, we are in a transition state, and shall emerge into a higher mode of simplicity than has ever been known to past ages. In such disastrous circumstances as I have been attempting to describe, it was beautiful to observe what a mysterious efficacy still asserted itself in character. A woman, evidently poor as the poorest of her neighbors, would be knitting or sewing on the doorstep just as fifty other women were, but round about her skirts, though woefully patched, you would be sensible of a certain sphere of decency, which, it seemed to me, could not have been kept more impregnable in the coziest little sitting-room, where the tea-kettle on the hob was humming its good old song of domestic peace. Maidenhood had a similar power. The evil habit that grows upon us in this harsh world makes me faithless to my own better perceptions, and yet I have seen girls in these wretched streets on whose virgin purity, judging merely from their impression on my instincts as they passed by, I should have deemed it safe at the moment to stake my life. The next moment, however, as the surrounding flood of moral uncleanness surged over their footsteps, I would not have staked a spike of thistle-down on the same wager. Yet the miracle was within the scope of providence, which is equally wise and equally beneficent, even to those poor girls, though I acknowledge the fact without the remotest comprehension of the mode of it, whether they were pure or what we fellow-sinners call vile. Unless your faith be deep-rooted and of most vigorous growth, it is the safer way not to turn aside into this region so suggestive of miserable doubt. It was a place with dreadful faces thronged, wrinkled and grim with vice and wretchedness, and thinking over the line of Milton here quoted, I come to the conclusion that those ugly lineaments which startled Adam and Eve 
as they looked backward to the closed gate of paradise, were no fiends from the pit, but the more terrible foreshadowings of what so many of their descendants were to be. God help them, and us likewise, their brethren and sisters. Let me add that forlorn, ragged, careworn, hopeless, dirty, haggard, hungry as they were, the most pitiful thing of all was to see the sort of patience with which they accepted their lot, as if they had been born into the world for that and nothing else. Even the little children had this characteristic in as perfect development as their grandmothers. The children, in truth, were the ill-omened blossoms from which another harvest of precisely such dark fruitage as I saw ripened around me was to be produced. Of course, you would imagine these to be lumps of crude iniquity, tiny vessels as full as they could hold of naughtiness, nor can I say a great deal to the contrary. Small proof of parental discipline could I discern, save when a mother— drunken, I sincerely hope, snatched her own imp out of a group of pale, half-naked, humor-eaten abortions that were playing and squabbling together in the mud, turned up its tatters, brought down her heavy hand on its poor little tenderest part, and let it go again with a shake. If the child knew what the punishment was for, it was wiser than I pretend to be. It yelled and went back to its playmates in the mud, Yet let me bear testimony to what was beautiful, and more touching than anything that I have ever witnessed in the intercourse of happier children. I allude to the superintendence which some of these small people, too small, one would think, to be sent into the street alone, had there been any other nursery for them, exercised over still smaller ones. Whence they derived such a sense of duty, unless immediately from God, I cannot tell, but it was wonderful to observe the expression of responsibility in their deportment, the anxious fidelity with which they discharged their unfit office, the tender patience with which they linked their less pliable impulses to the wayward footsteps of an infant, and let it guide them whithersoever it liked. In the hollow-cheeked, large-eyed girl of ten, whom I saw giving a cheerless oversight to her baby brother, I did not so much marvel at it. She had merely come a little earlier than usual to the perception of what was to be her business in life. But I admired the sickly-looking little boy, who did violence to his boyish nature by making himself the servant of his little sister, she too small to walk, and he too small to take her in his arms, and therefore working a kind of miracle to transport her from one dirt-heap to another." Beholding such works of love and duty, I took heart again, and deemed it not so impossible, after all, for these neglected children to find a path through the squalor and evil of their circumstances up to the gate of heaven. Perhaps there was this latent good in all of them, though generally they looked brutish and dull even in their sports. There was little mirth among them, nor even a fully awakened spirit of blackguardism. Yet sometimes again I saw, with surprise, and a sense as if I had been asleep and dreaming, the bright, intelligent, merry face of a child, whose dark eyes gleamed with vivacious expression through the dirt that encrusted its skin, like sunshine struggling through a very dusty window-pane. 
In these streets the belted and blue-coated policeman appears seldom in comparison with the frequency of his occurrence in more reputable thoroughfares. I used to think that the inhabitants would have ample time to murder one another, or any stranger like myself who might violate the filthy sanctities of the place before the law could bring up its lumbering assistance. Nevertheless, there is a supervision, nor does the watchfulness of authority permit the populace to be tempted to any outbreak. Once, in a time of dearth, I noticed a ballad-singer going through the street, hoarsely chanting some discordant strain in a provincial dialect, of which I could only make out that it addressed the sensibilities of the auditors on the score of starvation. But by his side stalked the policeman, offering no interference, but watchful to hear what this rough minstrel said or sang, and silence him if his effusion threatened to prove too soul-stirring. In my judgment, however, there is little or no danger of that kind. They starve patiently, sicken patiently, die patiently, not through resignation, but a diseased flaccidity of hope. If ever they should do mischief to those above them, it will probably be by the communication of some destructive pestilence, for, so the medical men affirm, they suffer all the ordinary diseases with a degree of virulence elsewhere unknown, and keep among themselves traditionary plagues that have long ceased to afflict more fortunate societies. Charity herself gathers her robe about her to avoid their contact. It would be a dire revenge, indeed, if they were to prove their claims to be reckoned of one blood and nature with the noblest and wealthiest by compelling them to inhale death through the diffusion of their own poverty-poisoned atmosphere. A true Englishman is a kind man at heart, but has an unconquerable dislike to poverty and beggary. Beggars have heretofore been so strange to an American that he is apt to become their prey, being recognized through his national peculiarities, and beset by them in the streets. The English smile at him, and say that there are ample public arrangements for every pauper's possible need, that street charity promotes idleness and vice, and that yonder personification of misery on the pavement will lay up a good day's profit, besides supping more luxuriously than the dupe who gives him a shilling. By and by the stranger adopts their theory, and begins to practice upon it, much to his own temporary freedom from annoyance, but not entirely without moral detriment, or sometimes a too late contrition. Years afterwards, it may be, his memory is still haunted by some vindictive wretch whose cheeks were pale and hunger-pinched, whose rags fluttered in the east wind, whose right arm was paralyzed, and his left leg shriveled into a mere nerveless stick, but whom he passed by remorselessly, because an Englishman chose to say that the fellow's misery looked too perfect, was too artistically got up to be genuine. Even allowing this to be true, as a hundred chances to one it was, it would still have been a clear case of economy to buy him off with a little loose silver, so that his lamentable figure should not limp at the heels of your conscience all over the world. To own the truth, I provided myself with several such imaginary persecutors in England, 
and recruited their number with at least one sickly-looking wretch whose acquaintance I first made at Assisi in Italy, and, taking a dislike to something sinister in his aspect, permitted him to beg early and late and all day long, without getting a single bayoco. At my latest glimpse of him the villain avenged himself, not by a volley of horrible curses, as any other Italian beggar would, but by taking an expression of so grief-stricken, want-wrung, hopeless, and withal resigned, that I could paint his lifelike portrait at this moment. Were I to go over the same ground again, I would listen to no man's theories, but buy the little luxury of beneficence at a cheap rate, instead of doing myself a moral mischief by exuding a stony incrustation over whatever natural sensibility I might possess. On the other hand, there were some mendicants whose utmost efforts I even now felicitate myself on having withstood. Such was a phenomenon, abridged of his lower half, who beset me for two or three years together, and, in spite of his deficiency of locomotive members, had some supernatural method of transporting himself, simultaneously, I believe, to all quarters of the city. He wore a sailor's jacket, possibly because skirts would have been a superfluity to his figure, and had a remarkably broad-shouldered and muscular frame, surmounted by a large, fresh-colored face, which was full of power and intelligence. His dress and linen were the perfection of neatness. Once a day at least, wherever I went, I suddenly became aware of this trunk of a man on the path before me, resting on his base, and looking as if he had just sprouted out of the pavement, and would sink into it again and reappear at some other spot the instant you left him behind. The expression of his eye was perfectly respectful, but terribly fixed, holding your own as by fascination, never once winking, never wavering from its point-blank gaze right into your face, till you were completely beyond the range of his battery of one immense rifled cannon. This was his mode of soliciting alms, and he reminded me of the old beggar who appealed so touchingly to the charitable sympathies of Gil Blas, taking aim at him from the roadside with a long-barreled musket. The intentness and directness of his silent appeal, his close and unrelenting attack upon your individuality, respectful as it seemed, was the very flower of insolence, or, if you give it a possibly truer interpretation, it was the tyrannical effort of a man, endowed with a great natural force of character, to constrain your reluctant will to his purpose. Apparently he had staked his salvation upon the ultimate success of a daily struggle between himself and me, the triumph of which would compel me to become a tributary to the hat that lay on the pavement beside him. Man or fiend, however, there was a stubbornness in his intended victim which this massive fragment of a mighty personality had not altogether reckoned upon, and by its aid I was enabled to pass him at my customary pace hundreds of times over, quietly meeting his terrible respectful eye, and allowing him the fair chance which I felt to be his due, to subjugate me, if he really had the strength for it. He never succeeded, but, on the other hand, never gave up the contest, and should I ever walk those streets again, 
I am certain that the truncated tyrant will sprout up through the pavement and look me fixedly in the eye, and perhaps get the victory. I should think all the more highly of myself if I had shown equal heroism in resisting another class of beggarly depredators, who assailed me on my weaker side, and won an easy spoil. Such was the sanctimonious clergyman, with his white cravat, who visited me with a subscription paper which he himself had drawn up, in a case of heart-rending distress. The respectable and ruined tradesman, going from door to door, shy and silent in his own person, but accompanied by a sympathizing friend, who bore testimony to his integrity, and stated the unavoidable misfortunes that had crushed him down, or the delicate and prettily dressed lady, who had been bred in affluence, but was suddenly thrown upon the perilous charities of the world by the death of an indulgent but secretly insolvent father, or the commercial catastrophe and simultaneous suicide of the best of husbands, or the gifted but unsuccessful author, appealing to my fraternal sympathies, generously rejoicing in some small prosperities which he was kind enough to term my own triumphs in the field of letters, and claiming to have largely contributed to them by his unbought notices in the public journals. England is full of such people, and a hundred other varieties of peripatetic tricksters, higher than these, and lower, who act their parts tolerably well, but seldom with an absolutely elusive effect. I knew at once, raw Yankee as I was, that they were humbugs, almost without an exception. Rats that nibble at the honest bread and cheese of the community, and grow fat by their petty pilferings, yet often gave them what they asked, and privately owned myself a simpleton. There is a decorum which restrains you, unless you happen to be a police constable, from breaking through a crust of plausible respectability, even when you are certain that there is a knave beneath it. End of section 20